Reflections from Torch Trust, focusing on Christian faith and sight loss. Hello and a warm welcome to Reflections, the show from Torch Trust that focuses on faith and disability in today's world. I'm your host, Marilyn Baker, and we've got a great show lined up for you. Perhaps you've heard of Pilgrim's Progress, Published in the year 1678, the book is an allegorical tale focusing on a journey taken by the protagonist Christian to seek deliverance from a great burden, the knowledge of his sin. The book has been published in over 200 languages and is regarded as one of the most important works of Christian writing. Its author was John Bunyan, a Bedfordshire preacher who was imprisoned for his beliefs. Bunyan was cared for in prison by his daughter Mary, who was blind. Our producer Grace travelled down to the John Bunyan Museum in Bedford to learn more about his life. I'm here with Janet Lindsay at the Bunyan Museum in Bedford. Um, now, Janet, John Bunyan was local to the area, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was born in Elstow, about three or four miles south of Bedford. And he lived there for quite a while. He married, and his family would be well known round and about because his father was also a tinker, which is a repairer of domestic pots and pans. Mm. He sent John to school until John was 14. He then apprenticed him to himself, and John became a tinker. Mm. So John Bunyan wasn't always interested in religion, was he, no, when he was no, young? No, very, very much not. Mm. He was a bit of a lad. And as I say, he could swear well, he could drink well, and was a thorough nuisance in the village. Um, John also liked dancing, he liked bell ringing. In fact, everything that was a bit frowned upon. He um, was keen on everything that he wasn't supposed to do. And eventually he was on the village green one Sunday afternoon and felt a voice or something saying to him, are you going to carry on like this and go to hell? Or are you going to improve and go to heaven? Now, John had been going to church, but not paying much attention. So he really didn't know what this meant. But he thought, perhaps he ought to improve. And then he thought, well, why should he? And then he thought, perhaps he'd better give up bell ringing, because something terrible might happen. In this time, John had got married and had four children with his first wife. And when she died, he married a second time and had two more children. His conversion came when he was sort of in his 20s. And he had, as I say, he had no idea what was on, as it were. His family had moved into Bedford by this time. And he was in Bedford at one time and heard some people talking about their church and what a comfort it was to them. So John thought, well, he'd got nothing to lose. Perhaps he'd join them and see how it went. So he joined St John's Church, which is in Bedford, still standing, as is the vicarage. The vicarage in Pilgrim's Progress is the translator's house. And St John's Church is open, you can get in. It's only a very little church. And he was there, but was taken in hand by the minister, a John Giffard, who was also a bit of a swearer. And so possibly they got on well. But he built on what learning John had and trained John to preach and teach. John thought this was what he was called to do, and it took off. Mm. So is this nonconformist at the time? It is nonconformist yeah. at the time. Mm. Um, the Church of England at that time was 
was fairly uh, open. Mm. You could worship your own way. There wasn't an awful lot of to do about it. But of course, when the Commonwealth came, the Puritans, um, they had of course chopped off Charles I's head, and the Commonwealth took over with Oliver Cromwell. That suited John and his people extremely well. They preached what they called a plain piety. Religion with teaching and preaching, but no decoration. Mm. You didn't have stained glass windows, you didn't have music. It was based purely on the Bible and the interpretation thereof. All went well during the Commonwealth. Oliver Cromwell inconsiderately dies, as is their wont, and people having chopped one king's head off decided they wanted another one. So they invited Charles II. So Charles, we had the restoration. And during this time, things got difficult. The Church of England decided that anybody who was preaching would preach a la Church of England, which meant the Book of Common Prayer and the Bible, and, and pomp and ceremony, vestments and candles and church. And this, of course, offended the John's people, uh, but they stuck to their guns and they carried on preaching. But the Church of England decided you will preach our way or not at all and clamped down on them and put them in prison. John was in prison here in Bedford for 12 years. Wow. He used his time very constructively and wrote an awful lot of books. Hmm. The one which, of course, is best known is Pilgrim's Progress. There were others, um, The Life and Death of Mr. Badman, The Holy War, um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Um, while he was in prison, of course, any publication of this style of his style of writing would be illegal. Mm. But somehow or other, things were smuggled out from the prison, and there was a publisher and printer in London who was willing to run the risk mm. and printed and published the books. They were still very much against the law, as it were. Now, you say he was in prison for, for 12 years. Would that be a typical sentence, or, or was that...? Possibly for that time. Yeah. He could have come out at any time if he'd refused to preach. Right. Maybe some of them did. But I think they had put them all in together, which struck me as being ridiculous. So they would have encouraged each other and come out even stronger than when they went in. Right. Stick to that so if he'd refused to preach, he could have come out any time, ah. but he wouldn't. Mm. He felt that was his calling and that was he was destined to do. Mm. Wow. Um, and his first daughter, Mary... Yes. Uh, she was blind, wasn't she? She was. She was born blind. Yeah. And he says in several writings and comments that she, that bound her to him more closely. Mm. And I think there was a very, much, very close connection with him and Mary. Um, because they lived near the prison, um, Mary could go down to the prison to take things to him because prisons were a bit stark in those days. And so she could well have taken him food. But because it was only a short distance, she would be able to go without anybody having to help her. Mm. So she may have been quite an enterprising young lady. We don't know quite how she was cared for particularly, but I expect she would be expected to do as much as she could mm. in the best way as possible. So here at the museum, as you say, you've got a lot of his belongings, we have, artifacts. We have, we um, have. The sort of things that we have, we do have models of him. Hmm. Um, there are various pieces. We have a table in the cottage. Various things on the table can be felt. Um, the pots can be held or touched. Um, we have various things that, that can be felt. Yeah. And people who can't see terribly well may well be able to see some things that may be helpful to them. But they will be described to hmm. people as who come. 
and if people can let us know they're coming, we can make special arrangements for them, and we'd love to have them. That's brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Janet. <laughs> it's been great talking with you. Thank you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong... Yeah.
was Before the Throne of God Above, sung by Lou Fellingham. Well, let's join Grace and Janet again as they explore the museum. Well, we're in the museum now, and we're actually in a recreation of a kitchen that John Bunyan would have recognised. Yes, yes. Um, There would be, of course, no running water, no source of refrigeration. There would have been a fire, and most of the things would be boiled or stewed over the fire. If, but no oven. If you wanted to bake anything, you would grind your own flour, which would possibly be stored in a barrel. You'd grind your own flour, make your pie, and take it down to the communal book bakers, who would bake it in his oven. You then had to fetch it when it was done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, a lot of toing and froing. Yes, yeah. No running water. The water would have been fetched either from the well in the garden or possibly from the village pump. Mm. Children who were not at school may possibly have had that as a job. Mm. John may have had pewter plates, but the chances are he would have had wooden ones. Wood would be, if it was dropped, would bounce, chances. If it split, it would be easy to be replaced and would be quite cheap. Plenty of wood about. Ah, right. Wow. So we're actually sitting at the table at the moment, at the kitchen table. We are. This is what the Bunyan family might have sat round to every day. They would probably have sat round a table, something like this. Yeah. Possibly have benches rather than chairs. Mm. Um, Knives, we would have had knives. But during the 1600s, um, knives were changed. Originally, you went to a party and you took your own knife. Wow. You (laughs) would then cut up your meat or whatever it was, spear it with the point of your knife and eat it off your knife. Um, the continent became a little bit more sort of sophisticated. And it was then suggested that we had rounded end knives. Mm. Hey presto, you can't pierce your meat with your knife to eat it off. So forks were invented. Originally two prongs, um, but they were sort of a bit high class. The poorer people would still have cut their meat and eaten it off their knife mm. or with their fingers. Right, wow. You would have had a bow, if you had pewter plates with soft metal, you would have had a wooden one next to it. So you'd cut your meat on the wooden one, mix it with your vegetables on your pewter plate, and eat it once again, either off your knife, or you were very grand, off your fork. <laughs> wow, it's surprising how different something as simple as that can exactly. be. Exactly. Originally, of course, you would have had bread, mm. and your stew would have been served on your slice of bread. Mm. A square piece of bread, a square meal. <laughs> so not, you, would eat, uh, you would have your gravy and your meat and your vegetables on your piece of bread, you would then eat the vegetables, and then you would eat the piece of bread. No washing up. Wow. <laughs> Genius, really. <laughs> Brilliant. <clears throat> wow, well, thank you very much. Interesting stuff. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you may have heard of Torch's Lending Library for blind and partially sighted people. Well, I'd like to share a reading with you now, taken from one of the books in our library. It's Fearless Pilgrim by Faith Cook. 
The remembrance of little blind Mary, still only ten years old and much in need of her father's care, came close to breaking his spirit. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. Poor child, thought I, what sorrow art thou like to have for thy portion in this world? Thou must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand calamities, though I cannot now endure the wind should blow upon thee. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture you all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition, I was as a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it, I must do it. A strong tradition exists that John's young blind child Mary used to come to the prison each day with a jug of soup for her father. Probably Elizabeth, or another adult accompanied her at first, but the sight of his dearly loved daughter knocking at the prison gate with his jug of soup must have been the highlight of her father's day. The jug itself is still on display in the Bunyan Museum. of the Savior with the heart of the Father you're all we need you're here with the hands of the healer with the power of your spirit you're all we need
And that was my song, The Mention of Your Name. You're listening to Reflections from Torch Trust. And I'm sorry to say we're nearly at the end of our show today. But before we go, it's time to hear from Reverend Hannah Jeffrey and her series on retreats. Let's go over to Hannah now. Welcome to what I think is going to be the last in my uh, little series inviting you to join me on on my mini retreat over these last weeks as I've reflected on you what came up for me uh, when I was on my silent eight day retreat um, at the beginning of my sabbatical. Um, And I just want to talk to you a little bit about a, a particular Bible passage that I read and reflected on a lot during my time there. And there was so much that came out of that passage for me, but there's one thing in particular that I want to share today. If you want to go away and read it, it's uh, from Luke chapter 5 and verses 1 to 11. And it's the story of Jesus uh, getting into Simon Peter's boat so that he could get a bit of a distance away from the crowds so he could continue to teach them. So he goes and gets into Simon Peter's boat and and off they go. And then when when the teaching is finished, Jesus then says to Simon, let's go out a bit deeper. And uh, Simon takes him out deeper and Jesus says, put your nets down here. And and Simon says, but Jesus, we've been fishing all night. We've not caught any fish. And uh, yet he puts the nets down. He says, oh, well, if you say so, then I'll put the nets down. And of course, in comes this incredible catch of fish. Now, there were so many things for me that came out of that passage. I read them Lectio Divina style. And we've we've talked about Lectio Divina before. And um, I'll come back to it another time. I'm not going to explain about it in detail today. But... Um, 
as I was reading it in that way, so many things came up. But the one thing in particular that has stayed with me was about Jesus being in the boat with me. I'll be quite honest and say that um, before I went, left to go on my sabbatical, I was pretty near burnout. Um, that doesn't mean there weren't some fantastic things going on in the benefice, but it had been absolutely exhausting. And uh, there was a there was part of me as I went into my retreat of, of saying to God, I don't know how I'm going to go back to that. I don't know how I'm going to go back and sustain all those pressures. And um, as I then reflected on this reading and spent time with it in prayer, I had this very, very profound sense of Jesus saying, but Hannah, I'm in your boat. And that reminder that actually, you know, Jesus is the one that tells us where to catch the fish. And that so often I, and I expect you, because I think probably us humans are all much the same, we can forget sometimes that it isn't all up to us. And maybe one of the lessons that God was trying to teach me yet again, because it won't be the first time, and it wasn't the first time, and it certainly won't be the last, um, was that it doesn't all depend on me. And it's okay because Jesus is in the boat with me. All he calls me to do is to keep rowing and to go where he asks me to go. And that just felt so releasing because there are times when, you know, I might have to make decisions about what we do or don't do. And I know people are going to be, some people are going to be unhappy with those decisions and that's going to create some difficulty, whatever it might be. And that can always be really difficult. But that reminder that actually I'm not doing it alone. Jesus is in the boat with me. And of course, that's the same for you. Jesus is in your boat. You're not in it alone. And sometimes we forget Jesus is in our boat, sitting right beside us, saying, let's just go over here. Let's just go deeper for a bit. You know, what does deeper mean to you? Because he said to Simon, you know, let's go deeper into the water. You know, deeper might be going deeper with God. Deeper might be, mean going out of your comfort zone. Deeper might mean just going into a space with God where you, you get away from everyone else for a bit to make sure that you do spend that time with him. To get reminded that he's the one in the boat with us. And that when we've got him in the boat with us, I mean, we're spending the time with him and acknowledging him in the boat with us. It's then that maybe we can be a little bit more alert to when he says, now, put your net down here, because this is where the fish are. But if we're too busy just being in the boat on our own, we can miss him saying, here are the fish. And we can miss the fish. So that's something I'm going to be living with and sitting with for many, many months to come, I think, because it was a key thing for me. But I leave it with you too. What does it mean for you to know that Jesus is in your boat? I encourage you over this next week to go and sit with that passage, Luke 5, 1 to 11. Read it prayerfully. Read it again. What stands out for you? What is God saying to you? For me. It was words of incredible comfort, if you like, to be reminded, I'm not in it alone. Jesus is the one, actually, who's in charge. I might have a job to do, 
I might have been called to do something, but I'm not called to do it in my own strength. I'm called to do it with Jesus in the boat, as are you. So let's get rowing into the deep and see what God has to say to us. God bless you. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening and do get in touch if you'd like to know more about anything you've heard on today's show or if you'd like to join our lending library. The number to call is 0333 123 1255 or email info at torchtrust.org. Until next time, from me, Marilyn Baker and everyone on the Reflections team, goodbye and God bless. You've been listening to Reflections from Torch Trust.